verse 8 through 10 tonight. And the message is entitled, The Dissension and the Ascension of Christ. Paul um, reversed the focus of the unity of one body with many members to the diversity in unity based on grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ in order to magnify unity by the diversity of each individual that has been endowed to be a functioning part of the body. And that's what we have before in verse 4. It was characterized by the soundness of diversity. Interesting, today they call diversity the same. Diversity means different. That's what it means. They've redefined the word for political correctness and political expediency. But the soundness of diversity, your body's a perfect illustration. You have different parts, yet they don't compete against each other. They complement each other. They comprise the whole. Secondly, we saw the source of diversity, and then we saw the sovereignty of diversity. And all of this is through Christ Jesus, as we've seen. Paul now describes the process of the ministry of Christ that made possible the unifying efficiency through the measure of the gift of grace to serve the body of Christ. And it falls into three movements here in verses 8 through 10. He says the following. Turn here. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. He says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The three movements are as follows. We have the ascension of Jesus proclaimed in verse 8. Second, we have the descension of Jesus explained, verse 9. And thirdly, you have the exaltation of Jesus attained in verse 10. The ascension of Jesus proclaimed comes first, verse 8. Notice the Apostle Paul quoted a psalm. Therefore, he says... Paul quoted David, the psalmist, as he is declaring the victories of God over his enemies for the benefit of his people. Psalm 68, 18. That's the context. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, identified the psalm to be messianic, interpreting it as a prophecy of the ascension of Jesus to heaven here. Now, you and I could never do that. Now, people try that all the time. Going to Scripture, they give a subjective meaning to something out of its context. And that's not allowed. But by the Holy Spirit of God, Paul does this as God is anointing him and drawing out from the Old Testament. Because that's all he had. He didn't have New Testament. And interprets it for us. Uh, Second Peter chapter... um, Three, um, or chapter one, verse um, eighteen to twenty-one says the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So what they wrote, they wrote infallible and inerrant by the direction of the Spirit of God. Now notice Paul transfers the context of the psalm from the victory of God over his enemies to the Lord Jesus. He triumphed over the power of darkness. And the God of this world, as we're going to see. Paul quoted the Father speaking about the Son. Make sure you understand that. The phrase is found one of the time, therefore he. He says it in Ephesians 5.14. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So it's the Father speaking. Remember, we've pointed this. Sometimes we can distinguish them. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish them. The Father, again, is the speaker about the Son 
Jesus in verse 7 as he was the one who gave to each of us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word says, as you know, refers to the scriptures of the Old Testament. The revelation of the mind of God, the revelation of absolute truth, and the revelation of the word of God. Something that's utterly dependable. Something that you can trust 100%. There have been many men try to destroy the word of God. They're gone and the word of God's still here. There have been many individuals through the ages, academics and other people, atheists, who have tried to discredit the word of God and they've been proven wrong. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the triumphant ascent of victory to heaven here. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Now, Paul does not tell us when this ascension took place until the next verse. The details of verse 9 reveal this ascension of Jesus is not the one from the Mount of Olives 40 days after his post-resurrection ministry to the disciples um, as he was speaking to them about the things pertaining to the kingdom in Acts 1.3. This ascension is not that one. The ascension that he is referring to here is the one that took place on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead. That may sound strange to you, but listen carefully to John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to Mary, remember she was there at the tomb first, right? Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. Jesus ascended after the third day to heaven first. Because we're going to see he took some people home with him. He certainly isn't saying, don't cling to me because I'm holy. Because when he appeared to the disciples after he ascended and came back down, he said, feel my hands, touch my side, right? So in other words, don't cling to me. I've got to still do some finished ministry here. The ascent was on high. Notice, it means the heaven. The high-ranking position where Jesus would... Um, sit at the right hand of the Father through the age of grace to save sinners from sin through repentance and make intercession for the saints, as Hebrews 7.25 tells us. Notice Paul identified a certain group of people that he ushered into heaven. He led captivity captive. The phrase led captive or captivity captive indicates to celebrate a victory triumph over one's enemy. The word was used of Roman generals when they would parade their captives through the streets to humiliate them being defeated. And they would always parade the strongest and the biggest. And they were first because they would be killed after they got Done with the parade. This is the word. Now, in our context, it is an exaltation, not humiliation, being experienced by the captives here. Jesus is leading the heaven, reinforcing the quotation that he began with in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. There was. The victory of God over God's enemies for the benefit of his people. Here's a great victory of Jesus Christ as he's ascending up on high. As he's just robbed Hades, as we're going to see, of all its captives. Victoriously. These captives were those who had died in faith, believing the promise of God about the Messiah to come to make an atonement for their sins. They believed the promise that God gave to Adam in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. That a woman would have a, man, a child without a man. A woman has no seed. 
She has the egg. The man provides the seed. Jesus triumphed over death and the penalty of sin, which death is. Jesus destroyed him, Satan, who had the power of death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says. Jesus said, I have the keys of Hades and death in Revelation 1, 18. Jesus tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2, 9. Now, all these statements are absolutely, utterly true. And Satan was defeated or we're just sharing some religious words just to make us feel good and confident. Well, really, it's not true. It's either one of the two. Notice Jesus triumphed over death to release those held captive in Sheol or Hades, as we'll see. The place of departed spirits prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth, you remember, in Luke four eighteen through 19, entered in and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. And there in Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61, 1, he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. Stop right. There at the end of that verse, we have verses they didn't. And he said, in, these, in, in your hearing, these scriptures are fulfilled. They went crazy. He was declaring that he himself was fulfilling this prophecy. And rightly so. You see, Hades or Sheol was a place of comfort. And a place of torment, according to Jesus. In Luke 16, 31 Jesus gives us an account of a rich man and a beggar called Lazarus. Prior to Jesus giving this account, the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about Sheol, the Old Testament compartment, which in the Greek here is Hades, same place. They just knew that whoever died went to Sheol, the good as well as the evil. But here in Luke 16, 22 to 31, if you remember the dead bodies of believers, um, um, or, or there, as Jesus is speaking about the place of torment, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave the evidence that he had conquered over death as those people who had died believing in Messiah. Their dead bodies were seen walking in Jerusalem, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two to 53. So first he gave the evidence that death had been broken by those people walking in the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus triumphed over the power and dominion of Satan and his angels demonstrating this by the fact that they could not stop him. He descended down to Sheol, or Hades, whichever word you want to use. Shield is in the Hebrew, Hades is in the Greek. Paul declared, if you remember, that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, making a triumph over them in Colossians 2.15, when he descended. A public display. They couldn't stop him. The word there, disarm, in Colossians 2.15 means to strip off from oneself, taking the victorious spoils of war. How fitting that is with the very psalm that he's quoting. It's the spoils of war. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament, and it's translated triumph in 2 Corinthians 2.14. We triumph in Christ, not in ourselves. Now notice, the Apostle Paul declared that Jesus celebrated his triumph of sin by blessing his bride, the church. He gave gifts unto men, he says. 
Paul alters the psalm here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to apply the prophetic fulfillment about Jesus. The phrase, you are, you have received gifts among men, he changed to, and he gave gifts to men. The psalm says, receive gifts among men. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he alters those words to he changed, he changed them to he gave gifts to men. The rest of the verse is omitted completely. So he not only pulls this passage out, but a very specific section. That's all. As Jesus did in the synagogue of Nazareth. The gifts are mentioned in verse 11. We'll get to them next time. By naming the gifted men for the church. He gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The vivid metaphor of the psalm quoted in our context is clear and consistent then. The booty or the spoil of the victory is imparted to his saints just as David did to his men often. The blessing of the measure of the grace and gift came along with the predestination of chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. When God saves you, he gives everything to you. Just like when a baby is conceived in a woman's womb, everything is in that baby. All the genes, all the chrome, everything in that baby, the nine months will develop it and when he pops out, he will grow everything he has. A liver is not added after he's born. An arm's not added after he's born. Everything is in that child that he's ever going to be. So the same with the Lord when he gives us salvation. Jesus in the day of Pentecost baptized them with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and dispensed gifts of the Holy Spirit as he wills, Acts 1.8. And there in chapter 2. When David recovered the spoils from the Amalekites, you remember that um, the Amalekites had raided Ziglag. And they found this young Amalekite and he led them to the camp. And when David recovered all the spoil and his wife and other guys' wives, they almost killed David at that time, his own men. And when he came back with the spoil of the Amalekites, some of the men that went to recover it, didn't want to share the spoils with those who had been back at the camp watching the stuff. <laughs> Listen what David says in 1 Samuel 30, verse 24. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so Jesus in his strife now dispersed gifts to everyone in the body, as we've seen already, according to the measure of grace, according to Christ's gift. And then he's going to give us some gifts mentioned. And he does it sovereignly, knowing what's best for us and where we fit. This is why we proclaim the victorious triumph of Jesus by preaching the gospel. Jesus came as the last Adam to defeat Satan in the temptation in the wilderness to prove that we can resist Satan also and we can defeat him by the word prayer and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus went to the cross and destroyed the power of sin and death. Jesus went down to Hades to take those who died in faith to heaven And repentant sinners. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 tells us that the minute we die, we are instantly present with the Lord. We are never found naked. So the minute a Christian dies, he's instantly present. 
The minute Jesus went down there and scooped up, he ascended up on high and he led captivity captive and they were instant in heaven. We're going to see this in the next verses. This is why we depend on the word of God throughout life for our spiritual growth, development and maturity in Christ to live as conquerors in Christ. Sometimes it's full-on warfare. Sometimes there are situations in life that just become heavy for us. Sometimes we just don't trust the Lord or don't depend on the Lord and we try to do it our own way and then we get ourselves in trouble. We're to live in the walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.25 says. We're not to grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. To be constantly filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. There's no other way we can walk the life that's going to be pleasing to God. This is why we teach and seek the Lord Jesus for our spiritual gifts. There are about 21 gifts that are listed to edify the body of Christ, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And every believer has at least one gift where to seek it out, to exercise it in the body, 1 Peter 4, 10. And so that no one is at a disadvantage one way or the other. So this is the ascension of Jesus proclaimed. He first ascended. From Hades, from Sheol. Notice secondly in verse 9, the dissension of Jesus now is explained. Paul the Apostle affirmed the correct ascension just mentioned in verse 8. Listen carefully. This is, this is um, verse 8 and 9 we're going to see, or 9 and 10 we're going to see is parenthetical. That means it's going to be, it's going to explain the verse we just left. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Did you understand that? Did you hear it? Okay. Paul, by his own words, understands that the ascension could be misunderstood and confused. So he says, now this, he ascended. What I've just told you about in verse 8. What does it mean? In other words, which ascension is this? There must be more than one than after the resurrection. If he says this ascension. Just as we have pointed out in the Gospel of John, when Jesus led captivity captive in John twenty seventeen, Don't cling to me. I have not ascended to my father as of yet. So again, the parenthetical verses of 9 and 10 indicate they're elaborating on the explanation of verse 8. Notice Paul identified the chronological order of their particular accession here. To the descension, the ascension to the descension. He declared, but that he also first descended. So he said he ascended, but now he says, now this ascension, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. So this ascension to the lower parts of the earth took place first before the ascension he just mentioned. Okay? Clearly, this descension to the lower parts of the earth is not referring to the incarnation as some teach. It's wrong. Okay? So this descension to the earth is not talking about the incarnation. At all. The lower parts of the earth once again confirms the fact that Jesus descended to Sheol or Hades. Not the incarnation here. Now notice, the Apostle Paul affirmed in a general way the dissension to Hades or Sheol that is described in specific details by Jesus and Peter. The Old Testament Sheol was the place of departed spirits after death, as we've mentioned. 
There is no distinction made between those who died in faith and those who died apart from faith in the Old Testament. There was no details about the condition or location of Sheol or Hades until Jesus explained it. So Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, as I said, gives us a very important information, that great detail about Sheol or Hades. They are the same place. Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek. So just jot down Luke 16, 22 through 31, and I'm just going to summarize what goes on there. These are important things that Jesus points out. Jesus told the account of the rich man of Lazarus, the beggar, and how both died and went to Hades. Jesus said Hades was a divided place of two compartments. The place of those who died in faith was the place of comfort, paradise, the bosom of the Father, all three phrases. The place of those who died apart from faith was the place of torment, and there was a gulf fixed between the two. The rich man could see Lazarus in the bosom of the father in comfort while he was in torment. And he asked if Lazarus might dip his finger in water to cool his tongue because he was in torments in those flames. Now, either Jesus is trying to warn mankind about the horror of what takes place of someone who dies without Christ, or he's just trying to be cruel and mean. Which one would you want to choose? When you tell the truth, sometimes people don't like it. They think you're unloving. They think you're mean. I think not only the words, but the words, the way, the attitude, the tone that you speak says it all. I don't think Jesus was arrogant when he's saying this. I think he was saying it with all love and compassion. The rich man had all his senses, his memory, about his family, our brothers. I don't want him to come here. Feelings, his sight, But it's interesting, that isn't said about Lazarus. Only the one in torment. And I thought about that. I wouldn't be very happy if I was in the bosom of Abraham and I could see the bad things that are happening to my family. But the man in torment was very aware. Interesting. The place of each man was determined by their faith in the Messiah prior to death, not after. Anybody who gives you hope in heaven after death, a second chance, is a liar and a deceiver. Get away from them. As you know, Jesus died on the cross and then descended to Hades, the lowest part of the earth. Sheol or Hades here. And Jesus gave a sign of Jonah to an adulterous generation. He says, adulterous generation are you, no sign shall be given you except that by the prophet Jonah. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew twelve thirty nine and 40. So Jesus locates Hades, Sheol for us, in the heart of the earth. Now, if you've taken geology, what is in the heart of the earth? Magma. Now, either Jesus is lying or he's telling the truth. But no one can live. You're not in his body. You've entered the eternal realm. The eternal realm isn't way out there, it's here. It's a whole different dimension. 
Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And he descended with Jesus, then was ushered into heaven with all those waiting for the Messiah, transferring paradise to heaven now. Second Corinthians 12.4, Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven to paradise and saw and heard things that are not lawful to me to utter or repeat. So what used to be the comfort, paradise, the bosom of Abraham, Jesus transferred it to heaven. Paradise is the third heaven now, because that's where Christians go, as we'll see. Peter quoted the prophetic fulfillment at Pentecost, and that David was speaking about the Messiah, not himself. In Acts 2, 24, all the way to 34, but he's quoting Psalm 1610. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Prophetic of Jesus. He pulls it right out of the Old Testament. By the Spirit of God. Peter gives to us more details about the dissension of Jesus to Hades. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. Listen carefully. First, he gives us the identity of the person. For Christ also suffered once for sins, meaning the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 18. Then he says, secondly, the activity of Jesus given by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. He descended to Hades. The word priest, there is caruso. It means to herald, to proclaim, to publish the gospel. Thirdly, Peter says, and he gives it the identity of those who he preached to, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So he identifies all those that died from the flood to present. You see, the preaching was not for a second chance when he went down to Hades. But merely in fulfillment of his mission to deliver those who died in faith, redeeming them, for they could not be made perfect without us. For God had something better for us. Hebrews 11, 13, 14. 11, 13 and 14 and verse 40 tells us. So, Jesus fulfilled the fulfillment of redeeming them from Hades, taking them to heaven. And so now we no longer go to Hades, as we'll see, but we go straight to heaven. Now, though Paul nor Peter tells us anything about Jesus proclaiming to those what he proclaimed to those in the bosom of the Father, those who were waiting in faith, it's very obvious that he, they had to have heard the same thing, the gospel, okay? The Jews understood the Messiah was coming. The Jews understood that there was a time of resurrection to come. Listen to Job. Job uh, believed in Jesus. Uh, he declared that his Redeemer lived and that one day, even though his skin would be eaten by worms, he would see God in his flesh standing upon the earth. Job nineteen twenty-five through 26. <laughs> he believed the promise given to Adam in Genesis three fifteen, The promise of Isaiah 14, 7, 14. Micah 5, 2. He believed it. You remember Mary told Jesus about her brother Lazarus. I know you will rise in the last day in John eleven twenty four. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
John eleven twenty five. Do you believe this? Oh, I know you're the son of God. Who can, I'm not asking you that. We always change the subject, don't we? He said, where'd you put him? But he stings by now, Lord. Where'd you put him? <laughs> and he says, and Jesus wept. No explanation why he wept. Either he wept because Mary doubted. Or maybe he wept because he's going to bring back Lazarus to this miserable life. I give you a choice. (laughs) We're not told. You see, Jesus going down to Hades would be like a parent who's dropping his child off at school. And just as the child is going to go into class, the parent says, listen, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to pick you up so I can take you home. And that child, when he gets out of school, he walks to the place that they made the agreement on, and they sit there, and they wait for the parent. Because they trust and they know their parent is going to come and pick them up. This is exactly what Jesus did. Do you think he he was going to do any less? Of course not. The scriptures are given to us that we might be very specific in the information we give to people. We're to give an answer to every man for the reason, the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear in 1 Peter 3.15. So those people that wonder why it is that we believe and how it is that we can believe and what is it that we believe in, that we're to be able to explain it to them. That's because we're fallen, we're sinners, and we're separated from God, and God died for our sins, and He loves us, and He's able to forgive us our sins, and how He can do that because He died for our sins in our place and explain it to them. But also to give accurate information about God's sin, Satan, salvation, the doctrines of the Bible. Being diligent to present ourselves and prove to God a workman doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. That's the reason we gather here tonight on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and at other times, because we study the word of God. Sometimes people come to church here and they think that they're going to get um, some kind of show here. Or sometimes, you know, they think we're going to be rolling down the aisles or something, and they're disappointed. Uh, We study the Word of God here. We study so that God can speak to us, and so then we can go out and live it. And that God can use us to reach others and everything. So we can grow in Christ Jesus. So we can become more like Jesus and less like us. (laughs) So we can be better husbands, better wives, better parents. That's why we study the Word of God. You know, there are some faith teachers that have taught and still teach that Jesus went down to Hades to finish the atonement and suffer at the hand of Satan. That's blasphemous. Fred Price, Copeland, Hagen, all those guys, by the way, which have just bowed their knee to the Pope and pledged allegiance to Rome. Them and all their leadership, thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of them, Protestant, apostasy. Pull it up on, 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 uh, on Google and that. YouTube. Amazing. Jesus finished the atonement at the cross. When he said it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, John 19.30. That's where he paid the price. He paid it to the Father. The Father poured His wrath upon Him for me. The Father accepted the payment. The propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. The Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. John 14, 30. How in the world can you teach that Jesus went down to hell, what we commonly call hell, Hades, and he suffered at the hands of Satan and made the atonement payment to Satan? What Bible are you reading? 
You're lucky God doesn't smoke you. Right in the spot. That's not error. It's not a mistake. A mistake is you make a left instead of a right. (laughs) That's not a mistake. John says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. Jesus knocked all of Satan's teeth out. All he can do is gum you. Defeated him. The moment a person dies, they are instantly present in one of two places, ladies and gentlemen. The unbeliever is instantly separated from God for all eternity and goes to Hades. Which is now only one compartment. No longer two. The believer is instantly present before the Lord to be with him in paradise, the third heaven, for all eternity. Only two places you can go. Heaven or hell. And that choice is made while you're living, not after you die. Paul put it this way, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 121. <laughs> Why? Because I'm instantly present. I'm instantly present with the Lord. I'm never found naked. My body goes to the ground. And when the rapture happens, he'll raise my body and he'll join it. What am I in up there? I don't know. I don't care. Don't worry about it. I'm not naked. That's all that matters, right? All right. So this is the um, dissension of Jesus explained. Notice how detailed he was because he didn't want it to be confused. Thirdly, we have the exaltation of Jesus attained now. Verse 10. The Apostle Paul continued to connect the dots, if you will, reaffirming that the one descended is the same that ascended, not two different persons. He who descended is also the one who ascended. Notice how carefully he's making these points. He's connecting the dots. The person is no one but Jesus Christ. Both ascended and descend or both ascended and descended are participle errors active indicating a definite historical past fact. Done. A fact. The one who ascended on high, leading captivity captive. Verse 8. The one who also descended to Hades. Verse 9. It's the same person, Jesus Christ. The person of Christ is head of the church. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead doesn't mean first to be raised, but the first in priority and in preeminence. He, he was raised out from the dead with a glorified body. He's the first to be raised in that kind of a body. Different than someone being revived, like Lazarus or the little girl, Tabitha, arise. The head and body are one. The entire context of the previous section is the unity of the body of Christ by the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 3. There is one body, one Lord, one God, one Father. Of us all. Verse 4 through 6. The individual believer is uniquely different, gifted, but complementary to each other under the headship of Christ, verse 7 through 9. The whole section is unity for efficiency. He's going to get to learning, maturing in Christ, learning the Word of God, so you can build up each other, so you can flow together, so you can be effective. Notice, still in 10, the Apostle Paul declared Jesus ascended a second time now to the third heaven. Notice, far above all the heavens. 
He just said he ascended. Now he tells you where he ascended to. This is the ascension from the Mount of Olives now. 40 days after the resurrection in Acts 1, 9 through 11. Okay? The first one was right after the third day to take the captives. Then he was here for 40 days with the disciples, right? Now we're at the end of 40 days. This is the ascension that we're talking about here. Verse 9 of Acts 1 tells us how Jesus ascended. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received them out of their sights. Now you know, Jesus often would appear and then he'd take off, right? Appear and take off. And I'm sure this time, the 40 days, ah, he'll be back. No, he just kept going. He didn't come back this time. Who saw Jesus ascend? Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So you have two angels and the disciples witnessing this. And then in verse 11, what the angels told the disciples. Who, said, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also, or so, come in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. So, he descended in the incarnation, he descended to Hades, he ascended up to lead captive. He descended back here for 40 days. He ascended up on high. And he's going to descend again for the, for the, for the church halfway through heaven. And then we're all going to descend at the second coming. <laughs> so when you follow the word, you can make the distinction between these things. The Bible teaches there are three heavens, as you know. The first is the atmospheric heaven where the birds fly and the planes. The second is the stellar heaven where the stars and the planets and the lunar module and all that. The third is the dwelling place of God, where God dwells. Again, Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 3 and 4, where he is caught up to the third heaven, paradise, and saw and heard things not lawful to be uttered. The Lord Jesus ascended up to the third heaven as the only savior and redeemer of sinners. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And no person can come to the Father but through him. He is the only one who died. He is the only one who rose from the dead. He is the only one who descended and ascended. And he's the only one sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's the only one that's coming back. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the purpose Jesus ascended to the third heaven. That he might fill all things. The word that, hina, introduces a purpose clause explaining the reason for why Jesus ascended above at the heavens. It is that he might fill all things. The tense is a subjective error is active, the Greek scholars tell us, expressing a definite historical past acts, plural. Listen to the Greek scholar Lenski, and I'm quoting him. He says the following about the phrase, might fill. It is an error subjective that is likewise a definite past act, which is uh, simultaneous with the exaltation and a permanent effect. Completely accomplished. The word fill means to make full and complete, nothing lacking. Appearing three times in the epistle. In chapter 1, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't fill and complete and is the source of. In Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, there it is, with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the love and grace of God, all that you needed, the potential is there. 
And then in 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be you filled, there it is, with the Holy Spirit. Completely. Overflowing. You see, the person of Jesus Christ is the source, sustainer, and the maintainer of all things. Nothing is out of, out of or beyond his control. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the epitome of authority. He is the preeminent one. He is the only intercessor. He is in complete and total control of all things, never subject or limited to anything or anyone, especially Satan, even though God uses Satan at times. All things are held together by him, Colossians 2, 7, 1, 17 tells us. All things. Who, who, who holds up the, our world, the earth, hanging there on nothing? God had the nerve to hang the thing on nothing, then spin it at a thousand miles an hour. And nobody flies off. The 24 elders in the book of Revelation fall down before him and who sits on the throne and worship him and who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. He emptied out hell, Hades, shield, took him to heaven. He closed up the place of comfort. Now it's in heaven. So that when a Christian dies, he's instantly present. Jesus provides a beautiful picture of the dissension and ascension as he takes his garment off. You remember in John 13, that night before the Passover, as they were going to celebrate, it says that he... Took his, he stood up and he took his garment off and laid it aside, grabbed the towel and a bowl of water and washed the disciples' feet. What a beautiful picture of what he did. He was in heaven with all his glory. He divested himself of his glory, Philippians 2, 5 says, the kenosis. And he took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to be obedient to the death of the cross. And when he got done, he sat down, he grabbed his cloak again, he put it back on and sat again, back on his throne. What a beautiful picture he gives of that, right there at the Last Supper. We have the God-man at the right hand of the Father, the man Christ Jesus, who identifies with us and makes the bridge to God as our high priest. It's all prophetic of the Old Testament. He is the ultimate high priest. All the priests spoke of Christ in types. Listen to the book of Hebrews. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, they know their theology. (laughs) He passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What a great difference. Thank God. If, if that wasn't in there, I'd be in trouble. If I say, well, with just a little sin, couldn't be a redeemer. Couldn't be a high priest. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. In time of need, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We have this privilege every day, ladies and gentlemen, night and day. I I don't know about you, but I'm just constantly before the throne of God through the day. I don't mean I I sit there on my knees and I'm I'm studying. I'm just, Lord, just help this boy. I'm just constantly. Jesus dwells outside of man's time domain, the third heaven, the eternal. 
Hebrews 7.26 says, For such high priest was fitted, or fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. The first two. The third heaven. Now, sometimes you hear there's seven heavens, Mormon, stuff like that. There's only three heavens. The Bible teaches three heavens. Jesus is the ultimate authority, Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. And every person will have to accept him before they die or perish. That's the sad thing. As long as people are living and they're alive and we can minister to them, there is hope. Once a person dies without Jesus Christ, all hope is gone. I don't know if you heard about this actor that jumped off the bridge here this couple of days ago. To his death after six, seven hours here in Pasadena. That's what Satan loves to do to people, you know. Push him to the men. Where you say, you know, it's not worth it. You know, I'm tired. Life shortchanged me and... What are we really saying? We're saying that we deserve more. We deserve better. And we only think that way when we have our eyes on man and on us. If we have our eyes on the Lord, we can never think like that. If we have our eyes on the Lord, we say, I don't deserve what I have. I deserve hell. There's a protection being a Christian. I don't have a right to take my life. It's not mine. No murderer shall enter the kingdom of God. It's real simple. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given them the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And he signed it in blood. No other way. People say, well, you guys are so dogmatic, you're just, you know, you're not flexible. I can't. God is patient, God is loving, God is kind, and so should I. But I cannot be flexible on another name, another way, another person. God sealed it in blood. He demonstrated it in history, at a set time, at a set place, for a set purpose. For the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of sinners. I presume we qualify. This is the exaltation of Jesus attained. <laughs> no one like him. Buddha is still in the grave. Allah is not God. Not our God. Christians in, in the grave. And anybody else who you want to name. Not Jesus. And so Paul has a, described the process of the ministry of Christ. That made possible the unifying efficiency through his measure of the gift of grace. To serve the body of Christ in these three movements. This made it all possible. The dissension and ascension, destroying death and, and the enemy, Satan. The ascension of Jesus proclaimed was the first movement. The dissension of Jesus explained was the second movement. And the exaltation of Jesus attained is the third and last movement. There's no more movements, it's done. <laughs> Three short steps. It is finished. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We pray, Lord, we continue to look to you and trust you in all things. 
that you would be honored, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your grace. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. Um, only you can repent. It's a prayer that you alone can ask the Lord to forgive you. No one can do it for you. So if you are here or over the internet, this is a basic, simple prayer of repentance to the Lord. If you want to be born again and forgiven. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.